0: The scripture reading for today will be selected passages from Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. Verse 1, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Verse 5, he took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. This is God's word.
1: As we start the new year, we usually begin with a brief series, being a new church plan a brief series on the values of Metro Presbyterian Church. And we really begin, we always want to begin with the centrality of the gospel. And today, we're going to just take a brief stop and look at the book of Genesis, particularly the life of Abram. Abraham, one of the most famous figures in the Old Testament. If you know anything about the Bible, if you know anything about the religious community, three of the world's biggest, largest religions all claim Abram as a father of their faith. So who was he? Abram was called out of his social, economic, cultural, and religious context. And God appeared to him and promised that one day he would redeem all the world through one of Abram's descendants. That's Abraham. And so in Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham and he says, get out, I want you to leave your country. Those days to leave your region was certain death. It was the end of your life. It's not a flat world like we live in today. Everything was built around regional pockets. But God called him to leave. And uh, in Genesis chapter 12 to 13, we see he comes and he rides to Canaan. And God says, This is your land, the land that I'm going to give you. So I want you to stay. Beyond the fact that there are probably more fertile areas around the world that he could see even from, an eye, you know, from just eye distance, he says, I want you to stay here. So he says, Leave. Then he says, stay. And, 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 you know, Abraham says, "Here." He says, yes, just trust me. Later on in Genesis chapter 17, Abraham says, you promised me a son, but I'm 99 years old. And my wife is pretty much 90 years old. Sarah is 90 years old. God says, I want you to wait. Just wait. Abraham says, how long do you want me to wait? God says, I want you to trust. He finally has a son. And in Genesis chapter 22, God says, I want you to offer up your son as a sacrifice. Abram says, the son that I've been waiting for all my life, how, why? God says, I want you to trust. In each of these cases, go where? Leave for what? Just trust me. Wait for how long? Just trust me. Offer him up. Why? Just trust me. In every one of these cases, Abram passes the threshold And he triumphs. And as a result, Abram lives a very, very big life. The circumstances don't master Abraham's life. How do you live a big life? That's what this text is going to teach us. How do you live a big life? The Bible's answer, you can't groan about this, the Bible's answer is you need to have faith. In each case, Abram believed. He trusted the promise of God. How do you live a big life? How do you trust God in that way? The text today shows us and it's really a remarkable passage, one of the most wonderful passages in all the Bible, I think. We're going to learn three things in this text. First, Abraham's doubts. Second, God's assurance. And third, uh, the implications for us. Doubts, assurance, implications. First, we're going to look at his doubts, Abram's doubts. Just a chapter prior, Abram's nephew Lot was rescued from these tribal chieftains, And it was a very violent time, and particularly in that region. It's still violent today in that region. But in that region, it was exceptionally violent. These tribal chieftains were about to kill his nephew, Lot. And so there were lots of reasons to fear. He had just rescued his nephew, lots of reasons to fear. And in this context, then, we begin with the opening, chapter 15. God tells Abraham, do not be afraid. I am your shield, your very great reward. Now, there's two problems that we have with living a big life. And you're going to see both of those problems in this text. First, God says, I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram responds. Verse 2, he says, basically, I'm going to paraphrase it a lot. He says, I know you're sure, but how can I be sure that you're good for it? How do I know? I mean, I know you're promising me all these things, but how do I know if you're going to pull through? How do I hook into your promise? How do I hook, how do I apply this promise of yours? That's the first problem. How do I trust? How do I know that you're good for it? We have those doubts all the time. How do I know? Verses 4 to 6, God reminds Abram of his covenant. He pretty much reiterates the covenant. He says, I'm going to give you a son. God reminds Abram of this covenant to, to basically renew and redeem his nation, his people, through one of Abram's descendants. I'm going to give you a son. And he he restores his covenant. He establishes his covenant with him. What is a covenant? A covenant is a life-binding, love-binding agreement. God is literally placing his name on the line for Abram's life. And in verse 6, it says that Abram believed him. Abram believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, this part gets very realistic. Because the first part, we see the first problem we have. Abram's doubt. How do I know you're good for it? Verse 7, God reminds Abram, I'm going to give you all this land. He promised him a son. I'm going to give you all this land. And here we see the second big problem with living a big life. God reminds Abram and says, you're going to get this land. You're going to take over this land. Verse 8, Abram says, well, now how do I know that I'm good for it? How do I know that I can accomplish this? How do I know that I can do this? So you have the two big problems. Versus the first five verses, I'm not sure if you're going to be able to pull through for me. But then the next two verses, seven and eight, I'm not sure if I am good enough to pull through for you. And inherent in all this is what? God is reasoning with Abram. He's reasoning with him. He's open to Abram's doubts. Abram has these doubts. God just reassures, speaks. It says, the word of the Lord came to him. He's speaking into Abram. We have that word of the Lord. That's our scripture. Through the word, God assures and comforts Abram. Through the word, he can assure and comfort us. Now, God comes to Abram and he says, I am the Lord, and I'm going to promise you this and this. And Abram essentially says, I don't believe you. I'm doubting you. I'm not really sure if you're really good for this. Abram has the audacity To question the sovereign Lord. He says, Sovereign Lord, how do I know? He's questioning the sovereign God of the universe. He says, I'm doubting you. I'm questioning you. I'm not sure about you. God could have easily said, Who are you? How dare you? But he doesn't do that. And what does that teach us? God is so faithful, so much more faithful than we think. He hears our doubts, He hears our fears. He hears our skepticism and he challenges us to work out our doubts and our fears and our skepticism. On one hand, what that means is you have the freedom to doubt. You have the freedom to question. What do you think prayer is? Prayer is the freedom to doubt, the freedom to question, the freedom to ask, the freedom to say, I'm not, I'm not sure about this. That means that we can come as we are. But on the other hand, God says, I'm not going to leave you alone in your doubts. I'm going to challenge you to work out your doubts. On one hand, you can come as you are, but on the other hand, you're not going to stay as you are. You can come as you are, but you can't stay as you are. You're not going to stay as you are. Today, we have a lot of people who are unable to open up about their doubts. So, uh, you know, especially today in an age where questions are, are considered, you know, sophisticated It's considered a sophisticated life to be able to question things. So on one hand, you have these traditional cultures that look down on people who doubt, thus increasing skepticism and fear and doubt. On the other hand, you have a secular culture that praises doubters, and so it increases skepticism and fear and doubt. Both create skepticism, skeptics and doubters, but here God says it's safe to doubt. I'm providing you a safe place to doubt, but I'm not going to leave you alone there. I'm going to challenge you in that, Remember Thomas, doubting Thomas in the New Testament? Thomas, he wasn't present when Jesus first appeared. And, and so Thomas says, well, unless I see him, unless I touch his wounds, I will not believe. That's us. When Jesus appears, he doesn't wipe Thomas out. He doesn't smite Thomas. He reasons with him. He's gentle with Thomas. You know what he says? He says, Thomas, touch. I want you to work it out. Figure it out. There's gentleness there. There's assurance there. There's comfort there. But then he says, will you stop doubting now? He wants you to work it out. On one hand, he reasons with you. It's safe to doubt. On the other hand, he's not going to leave you in your doubts. He wants you to work it out. So that's the first point, Abram's doubts. Now, the second point is God's assurance What does God do? How does he answer? Abram says, I don't really know about you. I don't even know about me. God says in verse 9, here's what I want you to do, Abraham. I want you to get these animals, and I want you to to collect these animals. And Abram knew immediately what to do. He takes these animals, and what he does is he cuts them. He doesn't cut them across the belly. He actually cuts them from head to toe. He splits them right down the middle, And he lays, he pretty much lays them, the sides facing each other. It sounds kind of gross and grotesque, but the thing is, he's creating an aisle. He arranges these animals in an aisle, and uh, and basically just wide enough for a person to be able to walk through the halves. Now, God says, I want you to get these animals, and Abram instantly knew what to do. Why is that? It's because Abram was a part of a merchant culture. And because of his career and because of his culture, he understood exactly what was going on. What was going on? Abram and God were entering into a contract, a covenant. This, in particular, is what we call, and it was very common in those days, it was a covenant ratification ceremony. Now, what is that? Today in our culture, when you make an agreement with someone, it's a literate culture. So when you make an agreement with someone, when you establish a contract, when you, you know, lease a car or purchase a home... When you get married, you, you know, you basically, everything is written down. So writing everything down is our way today of holding one another, the two parties who are entering into a contract, holding them accountable to one another. Both parties have to sign, and they sign before witnesses. And so uh, any modern covenant is handled this way. Uh, For those of you who are married, you understand this, because when you enter into a marriage, the couple has to sign a document prior to getting married. And that happens in the presence of witnesses. I sign the document. And uh, basically, it seals the covenant. It's a life-binding, love-binding contract. Basically, what you're saying is, I promise to be faithful to you. Otherwise, let there be huge consequences in my life. I promise to be faithful unless there be huge consequences in my life. Now, that was, that's the literate culture. In a pre-literate society, as in Abrams, you didn't write these things down, Right? What they did was they spoke the contract and they acted it out. It's an oral culture. So they spoke and acted out these contracts. George Mendenhall, who's a professor, former professor of the University of Michigan, and he's an expert in this Near Eastern ancient contracts. That was his specialty. He wrote a very seminal book, an important book, piece of literature called The Law and Covenant in Israel and the Ancient Near Near East. And uh, he basically saw in the language of the Bible Throughout the Bible, such as passages in Genesis 15, he saw language in the Bible similar to language in these Near Eastern ancient contracts. He saw them to be virtually identical. And so first he saw identical pieces throughout the Bible. Genesis 15, what's going on here, and the way God is speaking to Abram pretty much is very similar to the way God spoke to Moses in Exodus chapter 20 as he was handing out the the Ten Commandments. And so Mendenhall saw a similarity between eras of time throughout the Bible. These covenants were being ratified through generations. And he said, these covenants are very common in their day. And so what he did was he pulled out an ancient covenant in those days, those of any of you in contract law, and basically put them side to side and said all the components were essentially the same. What God was doing here is speaking out or preparing Abram to speak out and act out a covenant that he was establishing with Abram. And the contract implies, basically what they would do is a person would basically, the inferior party Would basically take these animals, split them from head to toe, arrange them in the form of an aisle, and walk through the aisle. And as he walks through the aisle, mainly, or the contract is implying, if I do not live up to these terms, may I become like the animals that are lying. May I be split in half, may I be torn apart, ripped apart. May that happen to me. Huge consequences. May huge consequences befall me if I violate the stipulations and terms of the contract. May I be cut to pieces may I be torn asunder, may I be cut off if I don't obey, if I violate it. That's covenant language. And it was always the inferior member because obviously it's the inferior member wanting a contract with the superior member, and so he would be the one to set up the contract and make all the promises. Now, Abram thought that what God was doing here was having him as an inferior member establish a contract with him that Abraham would have to walk through the pieces. And this is quintessentially how we deal and how we approach not only people who wrong us, but how we approach God. We look at ourselves as weak and flawed, so we make promises. New Year's resolutions, that's what we do. When you look at somebody who's wronged you, think about, I'm not talking about, you know, spilling a cup of water on you. I'm talking about when somebody really wrongs you to the point where they hurt you what do you do? How do you do? Immediately, you view them as inferior and weak. And mainly what you do is you're establishing a contract with them. You say, I know you failed me, you miserable fool of of a person you are. And so here's what I'm going to do. If you want to get back into my good graces, you are going to do A and B and C. And if you do not, if you fail, there are going to be huge consequences. It's how we talk to our children oftentimes. It's how we talk to our spouses. It's how we speak to one another, close friends in the church, or just outside the church, anybody. The law, it's just our natural self to be able to say, you are inferior, and so I'm going to set up these stipulations, and if you agree to them, if you fail, there will be huge consequences. It's also how we view our relationship with God. We think that that's how God is speaking to us. And Abram here thought that God was establishing this covenant so that Abram had to to walk through the pieces. Now, if that's what God was intending for Abram, it would not have helped Abram at all because Abram already knew he was flawed. Abram already knew he would fail. He basically said, number one, I'm not sure if you're good for it, but more importantly, I'm not sure if I'm good for it. I'm not sure if I can live up to the covenant. I'm not sure if I can live up to my promises. What happens here, and it's one of the most amazing things in the Bible, and it really should change our view of God altogether. Verse 12, the sun sets, and Abram falls into a sleep. And the actual language says it's not a normal sleep. It's a very, very deep sleep. And this dreadful darkness comes upon Abram. Literally, in literal language, this thick terror came over him. In other words, along with the physical presence or the physical absence of light, the physical darkness, there was a spiritual darkness that came over Abram. It was, almost gonna, it was almost consuming, and imagine this thick smoke that comes upon abram, and abram can 't breathe he 's falling on the ground he 's choking, and this terror comes over him, and this thick smoke now Abram basically what it means is it 's not a metaphor because and we know I can tell you why these events actually happened, and at least literally speaking, if we look at the context this absolutely happened. Abram is on the floor and he's choking and he's struggling with God and he's struggling with himself and he's struggling with doubt and he's, and he's struggling with whether or not he, he can trust God and he's struggling with whether or not he can live up to God's commands and he's choking and he's alone and here God comes upon Abram and he starts making promises to Abram. Abram's struggling here, this thick smoke, with the heavy weight of who God is the heavy presence of God. He's struggling with the, the heavy brilliance of God, the heavy significance, the glory of God is literally coming on Abraham. It's consuming him. It would have consumed him. And then in verse 17, this smoking fire pot with a blazing torch passes through the pieces. Now, commentators, they say that this billowing smoke—it's like a blade. Imagine a smoke-filled lightning. Now, when we think of lightning, we th- we see a flash, but this lightning holds its form, and it's smoking, and it passes through—literally walks through—the pieces. What's passing through the smoke? What's passing through the pieces is not lightning. But these are tokens, the smoke and the lightning, these are tokens or emblems of God's immediate presence, his glory presence. We see it all through Scripture. Uh, Mount Sinai, God is about to hand the Ten Commandments to Moses. What do they see? A huge pillar, a smoke and fire, lightning, holding its form presence of God, the brilliance, the heavy weight, the significance of God. Even Moses, the great Moses in the Bible says, I'm terrified. That's what came. And as it passes through, God makes this oath, this promise. And as he's walking through the pieces, mainly what he's saying is, again, I'm going to paraphrase. He's saying, I'm putting my life, Abraham, I'm putting my reputation I'm putting my name, I'm putting my significance, I'm putting my whole character on the line for you. If I don't live up to my promises, if I don't live up to my oath, may I become like these animals on the side. May I be cut up, may I be torn apart, ripped to pieces, may I be torn asunder, may I be cut off from the land of the living. May I experience hell and wrath and torture. Now, that's God speaking to Abram. Incredibly remarkable for, on various levels. One, in ancient contracts, the king would never, the superior figure, would never walk through the pieces. Only the, it was only reserved for the inferior party. Contracts always favored the strong Contracts always favored the superior. It was the inferior, like Abram, who we supposed to walk through, the one who was weaker, the one who had doubts. But here, what do you see? God has chosen to make himself weak. God has chosen to make himself weak. God has chosen to put himself under Abram. He says, I'm indebting myself to you. I'm going I'm to make myself under you so that you will know that I will treat this as if you are the superior one, and I will live up to my promises all the way. And I'm going to put my reputation and my life on the line for you. Look at the faithfulness of God. Look at the gentleness of God. Look at the patience and love of God. Abram here, he's saying, "I'm not sure about you," and God says, "I I'll make you sure." He establishes a covenant, a real covenant, something tangible for Abram to see and know in his context. And he says, yes, I will promise you, and now you know I'm putting my whole self on the line for you. I'm willing to put my life on the line. Inherently, what God is actually saying, and this makes, it even, this makes it pretty powerful, he says, if I don't deliver on my promises, may my immortality become mortal. May my infiniteness become finite. May my immutability, my unchangeability become mutable, changeable, transformable. May I be torn off, cut off, ripped apart. I will die for this promise. That's what I mean by putting my name on the line. And this and only this will answer to our first big problem with living a big life. The first big problem is, how do I know that God will pull through? God says, I will put my life on the line. You can trust me. I will put it on the line. I will put, I'm willing to put everything at stake. I'm willing to put everything on the line. That's why we know we can trust Him. That's why we know that. But that's not it. What's even more remarkable is that here God is, he passes through the pieces, and he makes this oath. We see this in verse 17. And then verse 18, the covenant's complete. It says, there God made a covenant with Abram. It's complete. Abram never walks through. Abram's the weaker part. He never walks through himself. And this addresses the second major problem we have with living a big life. On one hand, God says, if I don't put through, if I don't pull through, May I be cursed. May I be cut off. May I be torn asunder. But because only God walks through, he's saying, I will absorb all the risk. Abram says, how do I know if I can pull through? God says, I will absorb all the risk. Even if you don't pull through, I will pay the penalty. I will pay the price. If I'm not faithful to the promise, I will pay the penalty. I will pay the price. You know I'm good for it. But if you are not faithful to the promise, I will pay the penalty. I will pay the price. In other words, your faithfulness, Abram, has nothing to do with this blessing that I'm going to give you. It's all by grace. I will absorb all the risk. It is unconditional. Now, Abram is probably perplexed. I mean, he's just been given full assurance. How is that possible? I mean, he's been given full assurance. I mean, God can't just ignore the fact that I'm unfaithful. God can't possibly ignore the mistakes that I've made. A few chapters back, he made tons of mistakes. God can't possibly just ignore that. Otherwise, he wouldn't be just. He wouldn't be a good God. That means evil can actually just persist. He must have been perplexed. But we don't have to be perplexed. Abraham, he might have been perplexed. But we don't have to be perplexed because we know. Centuries later, in Mark chapter 15, Jesus is on the cross. And what happens? A thick darkness comes over the land. A dark terror. What's happening? The real terror is coming on Christ. The real reality... The real heavy brilliance, the real significance of the wrath of God. It's literally coming on Christ. So, on one hand, there's a physical darkness. It says darkness came over the land. But on the other hand, there is this thick, dreadful darkness. The spiritual wrath of God is coming on Christ. And Jesus Christ experiences the terror of God. Abram, the dark terror, he was eventually comforted. Why? Because that terror was the presence of God, and it was his comfort. But here is Jesus on the cross, and with the darkness came the terror of God's wrath, the absence of the presence of God. Jesus is on the cross, and he's struggling with the weight of the wrath of God. Jesus, he's choking on the cross, and he's struggling on the cross, and he's tortured, and he's being ripped apart. Jesus, he's the greater Abram perfectly keeping the covenant to his dying moment on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you know what that means? What what he's saying is, my immortality has been made mortal. My infiniteness has been made finite. Although I've delivered on every promise, my body and my soul are being torn asunder, has been cut up. I've been tortured physically, but now I'm suffering the eternal torture of being separated from God. That is the hell. That is hell, being separated from God. He says, I'm experiencing the wrath of God, hell on the cross. I'm being torn to pieces. My heart is being ripped apart. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 8 says, He was cut off from the land of the living, and yet Jesus says, It's finished. The debt has been paid in full. Jesus is there saying, if I was not faithful, I would have paid the price. But because you cannot be faithful, I will absorb all the risk. I will pay the price in full. To the end, Jesus Christ fulfilled every aspect of God's covenant promise made with man. And he became the curse. Second Corinthians chapter five verse 21 said, "God, who had no sin, became sin. God made him who had no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God." In verse six of this text, Abram believed, and God credited him with righteousness. Who paid the credit? Who paid it off? We are credited with the righteousness of God. It says that we can become the righteousness of God because Jesus Christ became the curse. Jesus Christ became sin so that the justice of God would be satisfied, so that the mercy of God and the love of God and the grace of God would be satisfied. Jesus was overwhelmed by the justice of God so that we could be overwhelmed by the love of God, by the grace of God. Isn't he trustworthy? Isn't God faithful? I mean, that is something to take with you in the new year. Isn't God faithful? Is he not gracious? I mean, he had his life ripped apart, torn asunder, so that you could live a big life. Could you not trust him? Could you not give yourself to him? What are the implications? Third point What are the implications? Very quickly. First, every other religion says, do this. And you will be saved, but see, if you do that, if you live like that, you're still trying to walk through the pieces, and that's going to create lots of brokenness in your life. It's going to create brokenness of the soul because you will feel you'll be overwhelmed by your guilt. It's going to create tremendous spiritual fatigue. I mean, are you not tired? This is the new year. Are you not spiritually tired? Physically tired, sure, but spiritually fatigued. So it's the end of work, in a sense. And in that sense, that part of your brokenness can be healed. You can't deliver. I mean, the only requirement, the only prerequisite to really getting this is to say, you know what, I can't deliver. How do I know that I can fulfill this? I can't. I'm flawed. I'm broken. Here's my brokenness. Here's my failure. You can come to God with your doubts because you can trust in the gospel. But you can come to him with doubts about yourself. You know, David, King David, as he's As as God covenanted with David centuries later after this text, David says, at one point, he says, I'm not sure if I can do this. This is a lot of pressure to be able to become a kingdom that's going to last forever for all time. I'm not sure if I could do this. God says, I will do it. I will do it. I will establish your throne. I will establish your kingdom. Is he not faithful? Jesus says, it's finished. It's done. You don't have to walk through the pieces anymore. I've been torn asunder. If you trust in the grace of God, you'll know that you are free of sin. You'll know that you are free of guilt. You'll know that you can't earn His righteousness. You can't earn God's favor. It has been earned for you and and paid in full. Any opportunity you take to try to work for that, that's called sin. That's actually called sin. This is the freedom from guilt. Jesus said, it is finished. You're saying, I don't trust that. You're still saying, I'm not sure if you can deliver. He has delivered. And not just enough to cover over your sin. My cup overflows. He has delivered and delivered and delivered. That's the gospel. Now, next, what that means... Every one of our sins today, every sin that we commit, I'm not talking about just the acts of sin. I'm talking about the deeper, inner, soulful sins that drive all the things that are overtly sinful in our lives. It's really because we don't, essentially, we don't trust in his promises. I mean, think about it. If you are bitter, what you're saying is, I don't trust in God's love. If you're anxious all the time, what you're saying is, I don't trust in God's wisdom. If you're guilty all the time, you're saying, I don't trust in God's grace. If you're angry all the time, you're saying, I don't trust that God is just. If you're unforgiving, you're saying, I don't trust that God is merciful. If you're greedy, you're saying, I don't trust that God will provide. Every sin is a failure to recognize and and trust and hook into God's promises. Thirdly, what that means is that you can go to God. You can go to God with your doubts. It's okay to doubt, but no, he will not leave you in your doubts. In fact, I challenge you, I'm I'm begging you, go to God with your doubts. Go to God and let him reason with you through the word. Now, if you go to God in prayer, but don't let him reason with you, you're still gonna have doubts, right? You gotta go to God. He's inviting you to come to him. He's saying, you know, you gotta come to him the way, in many ways, um, as Jesus is doing his healings, the one gentleman went to Jesus and said, I think I believe Will you help me with my unbelief? Go to God with your doubts. Lastly, what it says is that think about your doubts and the assurance that God gives. In Hebrews chapter 6 and on, and I believe a portion of that is printed in your bulletin in the word of encouragement, the writer says that when God made a promise to Abraham, he confirmed it with an oath, what we just talked about now. And the writer says, we have this oath, it's for us, and it's an anchor for our souls, firm and secure. What does that mean? What the author is telling us is to trust God, not just to put your faith in God, but to actually trust God, everything he says, not just the good portions, some of us focus just on the good portions, some of us focus just on the bad portions, trust everything that he says. Let it be an anchor for your soul. Read the word. Study the word. One of the best ways to understand the word, you have to read it. You have to study it. You have to meditate it. To meditate means that let it sit with you. Take even a verse. Let it sit with you through the day. That's what it means to meditate. But you've got to do it in community. Change rarely happens outside the context of community. I mean, we're going to start community groups in about a week or so. Plug in. If you're not plugged into a community group somewhere in the city, plug in because change happens in that context. Read the word, study the word, meet in community. And as you do that, and as you go to God with your doubts, and as you go to God with your failures, and as you go to doubt, I mean, a lot of times we don't even doubt that we're gonna mess up, we know. Go to God with those things. And and let him reason with you through community, through the voice of community, biblical community, not just any community, through the voice of the word, Let it speak to you. Let it work with you. Let it argue with you. Let it reason with you. Trust God, not just in God. Trust Jesus and what he's done, not just in Jesus. Hook into his promise. And if you hook into it, if you hook into the promise of God to redeem you, to renew you, to save you, to love you, to remake you, he doesn't just leave you as you are to remake you. No matter where you've been, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what kind of suffering you're enduring, you will see God is gracious. God is faithful. God is kind. God does provide. Will you make that your prayer? Not just for the new year. This, isn't a, this wasn't intended to, to just be a New Year's thing. I kind of just slipped that in there. But will you make that your prayer? for all of life unto glory until you see him again face to face. It will be remarkable. You will live a big life. You will make a... You know what a covenant is? I said it earlier in the call to worship. A covenant means as I indebt myself to you, that means I have to give up certain freedoms. When I first got married, I, my biggest fear was giving up certain freedoms. I had freedoms, I, you know, when you're single, you have so much freedom. You can do so much on your own. And you, just, you feel like you have unlimited potential to do all these kind of things. And I, what I loved, one of my favorite parts about being single, um, and I can't go too far, my wife's sitting right here, so I, you know, one of my favorite parts of being single was I got to, I got to uh, do whatever I wanted to do outside, and then I get to come home to an empty house. Now, some people hate that. I love that. I love coming home to an empty house. It's clean just the way I like it. There are two things that will ruin your life, okay? One, fathers, you know this. One, um, you will never come home to an empty home ever again. And you will never come home to a clean home ever again. And those things are like my idols. I like an empty house where I could just be, just, you know, just lounge out myself and clean up after myself. And then the second thing was, you know, I don't have the noise of other things. I can wake up whenever I feel like it, especially weekends. You love doing that. When you enter into a covenant, what you're saying is, I'm giving up this freedom for greater freedom. I'm giving up this joy for a greater joy. Is that better? I, I'm, giving up, I'm, giving up, I'm giving up this, uh, this type of uh, love, love of self, for a much greater love. And I've received so much. Will you commit this year This isn't a sermon to say, give up, give up, give up. Will you be so captivated by the love of Christ in your life that you would desire more of him and seek him and pursue him? All your doubts, just lay it out there. Don't just give up things. Give up your doubts. Reason with him. Let him reason with you. Let him work it out with you. God is present. He is faithful. He is good. Let's pray.